Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We have Art Leonard with us today, as usual, talking about three important cases that happened over this last month. They're highlights from our LGBT Law Notes, which we publish every single month. And this time, we've threaded them all together with a single theme. For folks who don't know, I actually record this opening segment and the closing segment after we're done with our interview for the podcast, now that we do things virtually, because I just don't want to take up any more of Art's busy time than absolutely necessary. Uh, He just finished grading all of these contract exams, and I know he's super excited about his retirement and eagerly looking forward to hopefully some downtime. But let me just say that I was on Facebook today and noticed that it was Professor Art Leonard's birthday, and so I just want to wish him a very special birthday. We are so grateful here at Legal for everything that he's done, from founding this organization to publishing law notes from the very, very beginning and keeping up with it all until now. And we love the evolution of this podcast and getting to speak with him, and um, I think you're in for another treat today. But Thank you so much, Art. Happy birthday. Here's to many, many more. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. Okay. Enjoying retirement, but I actually don't feel retired because I was grading exams and then doing the January issue of Law Notes. So uh, I haven't had any free time yet. Art, I have a feeling, and I think this is good because most people, when they retire, still want to work um, in some capacity, but I have a feeling you're going to work way more than you probably should for somebody who's retired. I don't know if you can really use that term other than they're just not sending you that regular paycheck anymore. Well, you're still I, I already the- have a stack of cases to start writing up the February issue of Law Notes and, yeah. uh, and also to put together the course materials for our annual year in review. You can publicize that here. Oh, Yes. We're very excited for the year in review. We've got so much to talk about this past year. Um, Fantastic uh, cases, including the Supreme Court case, obviously, but so, so much more. So that'll be February 11th. And uh, so I've got to get the course materials put together. Yeah. And for folks who are listening and don't know, the end of year in review, CLE is one of our biggest, it is our biggest um, uh, CLE that we offer totally for free. Whether you're a member of Legal or not, you really should be a member because that's why we're able to make this um, uh, great programming for free. But we basically go through and talk about all of the, well, a potpourri of all the most important cases of the year that affect LGBTQ people from the very big ones to a few local New York ones. And today we're really excited because we're doing something a little bit different. We didn't have the same kind of you know, headline turning splashy uh, cases in this edition of Law Notes, but there's still some really, really interesting federal court cases, trial court, um, you know, civil and state court cases. And I think we're going to talk about, uh, and we, we put together an all student episode uh, for the podcast today. Isn't that right? Yeah. Every case relates in some way to educational institutions and students. 
it's so exciting. Um, the thread, yeah, connecting all three of the cases that we discussed today involves school cases that impact queer students and equal access to opportunities, as well as discriminatory actors looking to shield themselves from allowing these students to participate free of discrimination. So it's a lot to talk about, and it's going to be really interesting because there are just so many different ways that queer people have to navigate discrimination and equal access in this setting. So let's launch right into the very first case. Um, a Trump appointed US district judge in Indiana, and um, we're going to talk about their ruling requiring Pendleton Heights High School to provide its Gay Straight Alliance or a GSA group with the same rights and benefits and access to that the school provides to other student groups. But the school claims that they can provide lesser treatment because GSAs are non-curricular clubs unlike uh, clubs that are curricular like the Outdoor Camping Club <laughs> which I'm sure is just all about curriculum. So our, it's all about camping outdoors. <laughs> right. That was one of my course requirements. I did AP camping. <laughs> I can imagine you being a very happy camper. <laughs> it was certainly campy. Um, <laughs> we can keep this going, our witticisms, but let's let's instead give the folks what they what they want here. Um, tell us about okay. this case. Uh, this case involves the interpretation of the Equal Access Act, which is a statute passed by Congress in 1984. Uh, at the time, the hot issue was how schools were reacting to the Supreme Court's decisions banning official prayers in school. And uh, many school districts were overreacting to this and suggesting that there could not be any hint about religion in any public school. And uh, it, it quickly became clear that obviously you could teach about religion. Let's say in a world history course, you can teach about the world's great religions and stuff like that. Uh, and also that students had a right to pray. It's just that the school wasn't supposed to mandate prayer or have official prayers and things of that sort. Uh, but uh, one of the issues was students who wanted to form Bible study clubs or who wanted to conduct religious exercises that were student organized, that were not mandatory to participate in. And Congress wanted to protect that, uh, the right of students to do that. So the Equal Access Act provided that if the school allows non-curricular activities, non-curricular student clubs and things of that sort, it could not discriminate on the basis of content or subject matter. And what the interesting phenomenon is, if you look at the date of this, 1984, uh, GSAs, Gay Straight Alliances and high schools were just emerging. They were, they were a new phenomenon. Uh, you know, we had gay student organizations being formed at the college level in the 1970s, and there was litigation about that. Uh, but gay straight alliances and high schools, that, that was a later development. And that piggybacked on the Equal Access Act because the Gay Straight Alliance would be a non-curricular club if a school recognized non-curricular clubs and extended privileges to non-curricular clubs. Uh, the privileges uh, in this case, the Pendleton Heights Gay Straight Alliance case that we're talking about involve being able to put notices on the official bulletin boards to announce events on the school's radio station, to raise funds at school for its activities and to be listed in the student handbook. Uh, these were all denied to non-curricular clubs, but allowed for curricular clubs, according to the school. 
so the Gay Straight Alliance wanted to uh, get these privileges. They were allowed to meet at the school. Uh, there was no ban on non-curricular clubs meeting, but they were denied access to these other privileges. So represented by uh, the ACLU of Indiana, they went into court and said, we think we are being denied our rights under the Equal Access Act, as well as the First Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause. You know, they threw in all these constitutional things, but really it's an Equal Access Act thing because if they went under the Equal Access Act, there's no need for the court to look to the constitutional arguments. And all they had to do to win, and this is case law established going back decades now, you would think that any school board with a competent legal counsel would have been advised about this. If you have any recognized student organization receiving these privileges that is a non-curricular club, then you're violating the Equal Access Act if you don't extend it to other non-curricular clubs because of the subject matter. Okay, and so uh, they focused in on the Outdoor Adventure Club, uh, which uh, took students out on outings. It's a student-organized club, but they went out on outings. They went hiking, you know, and uh, out to the old swimming hole and all these other things. And they were allowed to post notices on the bullet boards and, and make announcements on the radio and all this sort of thing. Uh, and the school said, well, that's sort of extension of our physical education program. And uh, Judge Sweeney, James R. Sweeney, a Trump appointee, said, no, 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 no. Uh, the Outdoor Adventure Club does not meet the Supreme Court's test. And in fact, there's an early case under the Equal Access Act, which he referred to as controlling the Supreme Court decision from 1990 called Board of Education of Westside Community Schools versus Mergents which involved a scuba diving club at a high school. Uh, the high school actually had a swimming course. They had a swimming pool, but they didn't teach scuba diving. The scuba diving club was solely an extracurricular activity uh, and it was not related to the curriculum in any way. People didn't get academic credit for taking it. It didn't teach things that were taught as part of the curriculum of the school. And so under the Supreme Court's uh, interpretation of the Equal Access Act, it was a non-curricular club but the school had provided it with all of the rights and privileges of a curricular club. And uh, there was a complaint that other non-curricular clubs were being excluded because of their subject matter. I don't even know, and I don't think Judge Sweeney mentions whether this litigation was about a gay straight alliance. But the point is, if you make one exception, if you have one non-curricular club that's getting all the benefits, then you can't deny equal access to all other non-curricular clubs based on their subject matter as long as it's lawful subject matter. Uh, and so he said, in this case, the Gay Straight Alliance is entitled to a preliminary injunction because all we have at this point is allegations. Uh, this, this lawsuit was recently filed. Uh, all we have is allegations. Obviously, facts have to be proved. Uh, but preliminary injunction, you know, once you get a preliminary injunction, it's because the judge has decided you have a high probability of winning. And uh, that the public interest uh, is not opposed to ordering that you be uh, granted these, uh, these benefits. And uh, one argument the school made, they said, well, we would have to reprint the student handbook in order to list them. <laughs> you know, we would have this expense. And uh, the judge said, well, look, they've agreed as long as you list them in the online version, you don't have to reprint the handbook till next year. I mean, this is just, it strikes me as so ridiculous. Number one, the Supreme Court cases 
pretty on point. I mean, right. you would have to, I, I know we sometimes underestimate Trump judges and how they'll go through, through hoops to, you know, deny that, that a case is a certain way if they want to reach a particular outcome. But that case was like dead on. Plus the expense argument, my God, how expensive is this litigation? Think about if they decide to appeal, forget it, put it in the handbook. That's much, much cheaper. Well, I think they, they didn't want to have announcements over the radio that there's a gay straight alliance meeting, you know, mm. but the point is virtually every gay straight alliance who has litigated this issue has won. Right. The only case I can recall in which a gay straight alliance lost uh, was before a senior federal district judge in San Antonio, Texas, because there was evidence that the club had hired a non-student uh, to make a website for them. And the non-student put links to sexually oriented materials. And the judge said, well, you know, the, the club's going to be a venue for people getting access to gay porn. Uh, I think the school can refuse to recognize them officially. But now, in this case, if, if the uh, Outdoor Adventure uh, Club is the only non-curricular club that's getting these benefits, the school could shut out the GSA by shutting out the Outdoor Adventure Club, right? You know, because then they would have no non-curricular club that's receiving uh, these these uh, rights and privileges. Uh, but I would imagine that the Outdoor Adventure Club is a very popular club, and they'd be an outcry if they suddenly said they can't announce their activities. Why, the why do you imagine it's that popular? What would <laughs> Outdoor Adventure Club? Well, this is this is in Indiana. What else do the kids have to do? You know. <laughs> I'm picturing people roasting marshmallows on sticks or... Is that an outdoor adventure? I have no idea. You know I didn't do sports art. (laughs) I thought you said you went camping. (laughs) I'll put camping in quotes there. All right. This is is a lot of fun. Um, But we have to... Unless... Did you have a few parting thoughts on this case or... Even this, the school district's position here was even too much for a Trump appointed judge. Right. Well, let's go ahead and move right into that next case after this very short break. All right. The next case that we're going to discuss is one brought by Lambda Legal and the ACLU represent a tra- representing a, a transgender sixth grader who wants to participate in school athletics. This is pretty much one of those cases that we've heard of before. But this case challenges HB 3293, which is a discriminatory West Virginia law that was signed into law at the end of April as we were watching all of those hundreds of anti-LGBTQ bills being pushed through state legislatures across the country in 2021. So this is one of those kind of first challenges to a law like that. Art, tell us a little bit about this case and how it came to be that there were so many prominent players on both the LGBT front and the anti-LGBT front. Well, this is uh, this is a leading case, I guess you could call it a test case, uh, challenging these uh, official policies barring transgender students from competing on sports teams consistent with their gender identity. So uh, PBJ, uh, the plaintiff is identified by initials, as you mentioned, a sixth grade girl. She wants to participate in school athletics uh, as a girl. And uh, she has brought affirmative litigation. Uh, The case was filed just shortly after the act was signed into law. And under this act, 
any sports team sponsored by a public secondary school or higher education institution in West Virginia has to be designated as male, female, or co-ed. Teams designated as female are not open to males, while teams designated as male are open to either sex. And of course, co-ed is open to either sex. And the act defines male and female as a person's biological sex determined at birth. All right. So uh, the, uh, the case was quickly filed, signed into law April 28th. By July 21st, uh, District Judge Joseph Goodwin has granted a preliminary injunction against its enforcement, uh, finding that uh, the plaintiffs were likely to prevail on their claim that it violated uh, the constitutional rights of cisgender, of transgender students. And uh, Lambda Legal and ACLU brought the case. Uh, the defendants include the West Virginia State Board of Education, the Harrison County Board of Education, uh, since uh, BPJ goes to school in Harrison County, the West Virginia Secondary School Activities Commission, which governs uh, school sports, and the West Virginia Attorney General's Office, which has enforcement authority under the statute. And the Justice Department filed a statement of interest in the case, presumably in opposition to the statute in light of the Biden administration's stated policies on point. Uh, and so in the July 21st decision, Judge Goodwin found the plaintiff was likely to succeed on a claim that it violates both equal protection and Title IX of the education amendments of 1972 which forbids sex discrimination by educational institutions that receive federal financial funding, which is virtually all the public schools in the country. Uh, now on December 1st, uh, in terms of our January issue of law notes, there were two opinions issued by Judge Goodwin on the same day. One, uh, denying a motion to dismiss by the defendants. The other, uh, granting a motion of intervention filed by Alliance Defending Freedom on behalf of a cisgender college student who doesn't want to have to compete. Uh, she, she says, I don't want to have to compete against men. Uh, I mean, the position of ADF is that once a man, always a man. Once a boy, always a boy. Gender is immutable. I shake my head because it's frustrating, not because we haven't heard this before, right? Like right. that's- that This is the party- this is the party line on the right, uh, right. in terms of the, uh, you know, the Republican Party and, uh, and social conservatives. I think this is a wedge issue more than anything else. There, there isn't a huge quantity of transgender kids seeking to compete. There's a relatively small number, but the ones that do get a lot of publicity because, uh, as I say, this is a wedge issue for the conservatives. Uh, so uh, in terms or of- Can you imagine being- a student who just wants to play for a team and knowing that you're having to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. You're, you're a young kid. All you want to do is, is play. And she's a sixth just, grader here. Uh, right. And uh, she, she believes that she's going to run into problems under the statute. I mean, the, the significance of the intervention is that if intervention is granted and uh, Laney Armistead is the name of the uh, of the woman here. If she becomes a party to the case, then ADF presumably could block a settlement and could appeal any rulings, uh, you know, that are subject to interlocutory appeal and things of that sort. 
so at any rate, uh, she claimed that she had a right to intervene as a right because of how she would be affected by the statute. And the judge said, no, you can't intervene as a right because the government is the defendant and there's no presumption that the government is not going to adequately defend the statute. Uh, but there is discretionary intervention and the judge found that she did qualify for discretionary intervention because uh, as he put it, uh, Ms. Armistead plans to defend HB 3293 as a member of the class of people for whom the law was written. She will add a perspective not represented by any of the current defendants. That is the defendants are all government bodies. She is a cisgender woman who would have to compete against transgender women if there are any transgender women at her college who are gonna compete or at schools that they're gonna compete against. She doesn't wanna to have to compete against men. And as far as she's concerned, if she's being uh, required to compete against transgender women, she's being required to compete against men. Uh, so uh, the judge granted the motion for intervention. So that means ADF gets to sit at the table and uh, to act in the case. And in terms of, uh, of Lambda and uh, the ACLU here, uh, they argued that uh, ADF has consistently misgendered people in their suit papers, in their arguments, et cetera, because consistent with their view, a transgender woman is a man wearing women's clothes. I mean, they, they see it as uh, that this is uh, mythological, fictional, socially constructed, not real in some sense. Uh, and they said, this is gonna, it, it's gonna permeate and it's gonna affect uh, how people are referred to, et cetera. And the judge, uh, both here and in the other opinion in which he denies the defendant's motion to dismiss, uh, set, he, he devotes a whole section under the heading preliminary matter to the subject of pronouns. Uh, he, he says, uh, look, in order to avoid confusion, uh, I'm going to use the term biological woman or biological man when speaking of an individual as they were identified at birth. And I will use the terms transgender woman, transgender man, or cisgender woman or man when I'm referring to people by their gender identity. And that's my dictionary for, you know, how I'm going to write my opinion. And uh, I am not going to impose that on any party to this case. They can use whatever pronouns they want, as long as it's clear in the context what they mean. Uh, so if they feel they have to use particular pronouns to make their arguments, they can do so. But he said, by using these terms, I am not taking any political position on gender identity or anything like that. I'm just trying to clarify what I'm going to be saying. But then he turns to the merits of uh, the motion to dismiss, and they claim that BPJ had no standing to challenge the law. She hadn't been affected yet in any way. Her claims were not ripe for adjudication. This, was, this litigation was premature. And uh, he said, she has adequately alleged an injury in fact, that she will be treated differently on the basis of sex. She's asserted that under HB 3293, each defendant will take some action that will cause her asserted harm. And she has established that each defendant can redress her claims because a favorable ruling against each will prevent them from enforcing the act as to her. Uh, and it's ripe for adjudication because he said it doesn't require any future factual development at all. This is purely a question of law in this sense. The question is whether it is permissible under Title IX or the Equal Protection Clause 
to prevent BPJ, a transgender girl, from playing on girls' sports teams. And the statute mandates that defendants exclude her from doing so. So, you know, in, in terms of the facts here, we, we, we will get into facts, obviously, in the litigation on the merits, uh, because the, the question will be whether the state can justify this exclusion. Uh, and uh, in terms of the argument that she had failed to state a claim, he said, well, it's clear West Virginia District Court is subject to Fourth Circuit precedent. In the Fourth Circuit, we have Grimm versus Gloucester County School Board, in which uh, the Fourth Circuit held that uh, Title IX applies to gender identity discrimination claims. And cert was denied by the Supreme Court in that case during 2021. Uh, furthermore, you add in the Bostock case, the Supreme Court itself has ruled uh, that discrimination against someone because of their transgender status is discrimination on the basis of sex. Therefore, Title IX should be construed to ban discrimination based on gender identity. So uh, I think the denial of the motion to dismiss couldn't have been a surprise to the defendants uh, since they lost uh, on a preliminary injunction that was granted. So the, uh, the statute is not in effect now, it's blocked at the moment. Uh, but uh, I suspect that ADF's intervention was undertaken, not just because they wanna be involved in every such case, but uh, it's possible that after losing on the motion to dismiss and being subject to the injunction, who knows the West Virginia legislature might just repeal the statute possible we don't know it's a republican dominated legislature i was gonna Probably say not we're <laughs> but, still dealing with legislatures that won't repeal sodomy laws right so although i don't know if that's the case with west virginia but it may be but in any event adf now has a seat at the table uh and uh they will be heard from on any motion that's undertaken in this case or presumably they will have grounds to object to any settlement uh so uh, Lambda Legal, ACLU National, ACLU West Virginia, and cooperating attorneys from the law firm Cooley. Uh, and Judge Goodwin, who is, I believe, a senior judge at this point, was appointed by President Clinton. You got a lot of Clinton appointees still on the bench, uh, mainly in senior capacity. But the, the federal judiciary is so stretched that senior judges are they're getting, they're carrying heavy caseloads. Senior judges yeah. want to continue sitting uh, because uh, same thing at the courts of appeals. We have senior court of appeals judges on lots of panels uh, and true. writing their share of opinions. Yeah. And I was just watching, you know, we're waiting for we've had a couple of appointments by uh, Biden now, at least one that I can think of in the Sixth Circuit where people are losing their mind. Um, but also now there's a vacancy in the Fifth Circuit. And what makes me. You know, it's a Democratic appointee. Who's, it's right. The people stepping down are the Democrats. <laughs> the right, few that the, remain. The Fifth Circuit is like two to one Republican appointees. All right. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about our very last case, which is a little bit different in nature because it deals with the discriminatory actor bringing the suit. Okay, we're back. Our final school case was not initiated by queer students seeking fairness and educational opportunities, 
but by a Pentecostal Christian church, which operates a school in Maryland. At issue is the state's decision to deny church-run school eligibility to participate in a voucher program to benef that benefits low-income students because the institution wants to discriminate against queer kids. Art, tell us about this one. Well, uh, the interesting thing is they claim that they haven't discriminated against queer kids in admissions. Uh, the, the, the important thing to remember is uh, Maryland uh, has a program called Broadening Options and Opportunities for Students Today. Uh, I think the, this, is, this is one of those statutes that was specifically named to have an acronym that would be descriptive. And so the acronym is BOOST. They want to boost educational opportunity for poor kids. And basically students uh, whose uh, family income is low enough that they qualify for the school lunch program are qualified for this. Uh, they can get a voucher from the state uh, to go to a private school. And uh, the uh, statute uh, was passed in 2016. And uh, it initially said uh, that you can't discriminate in admissions. Uh, student admissions on the basis of race, color, national origin, or sexual orientation. Any school that discriminates in admissions on that basis, uh, you can't use a voucher to go there from the state because the state will not uh, subsidize such discriminatory schools. Uh, and uh, in order to monitor this program, they requested handbooks, student handbooks and guidelines and things of that sort from all participating schools to ensure compliance. Uh, so Bethel Christian Academy was a participating school. They sent in their handbook and the advisory board that reviews and makes recommendations to the state education department about who's eligible to be in the program and is not flagged several schools for non-compliance, including Bethel Christian. Uh, the relevant portion of the student handbook said to prospective students and parents, quote, continued enrollment of their child is dependent on their support of the school, its staff, and its policies. And it informed applicants that Bethel Christian Academy supports the biblical view of marriage defined as a covenant between one man and one woman. Uh, they're not referring to the Old Testament, which allowed polygamy. <laughs> you know, how many wives did King Solomon have? You know. Uh, and God immutably bestows gender upon each person at birth as male or female to reflect his image. Importantly, it quote, faculty, staff, and students are expected to align with this view and are required to identify with, dress in accordance with, and use the facilities associated with their biological gender. Okay, so uh, the uh, advisory board said, it sounds like they're gonna discriminate in admissions based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And therefore they are not qualified. And since they're not qualified, we're gonna require them, we're gonna claw back the money, $102,000 that they received through vouchers during the previous school year because they were not qualified. And so this stirred up Bethel to file this lawsuit. Interestingly, that uh, by the time the lawsuit was filed, the legislature had amended the statute uh, to mandate that schools not discriminate in student admissions, retention or expulsion, or otherwise discriminate against any student on the basis of race, color, national origin, sexual orientation, or gender identity or expression. So the 2019 legislation 
extended the non-discrimination requirement from just admissions to uh, retention, dismissal, etc., and added gender identity or expression, which hadn't been listed back in 2016 when they passed the original one. Uh, but what is an issue in this case was whether Bethel has to pay back the money and was not qualified under the original because uh, this, this case now uh, is uh, you know, looking forward to what the situation may be. Now, Bethel says that uh, suspending them for what's in their handbook violates their First Amendment rights because the state didn't inquire as to whether they actually refused admission to any gay applicants. And they said, we haven't, at least to our knowledge. And furthermore, they said, we wouldn't discriminate against gay applicants, even though we have a code of conduct that says they can't engage in gay sex, even though we have a code of conduct that says they have to dress consistent with their uh, sex as identified at birth, et cetera. Even though we say that transgender students may not use the restrooms consistent with their gender identity, et cetera. But they said that has nothing to do with admissions. And this case is litigated on the issue of admission policy, not retention and dismissal because that wasn't added to the statute until later. So this case has nothing to say going forward. It's just looking retrospectively at Bethel under the original statute. And uh, the judge in this case, uh, Judge uh, Stephanie Gallagher found that suspending and clawing back the money violated the First Amendment rights of Bethel because it was based entirely on reading what they said in their handbook. Therefore, it was a content-based regulation of speech. Uh, and uh, the state uh, had no proof that they were actually discriminating. Uh, and therefore, they can't claw back the money. But this has nothing to say about going forward, whether Bethel can continue uh, to be, uh, to be uh, participating in the program uh, if they maintain that they're going to dismiss people who cross-dress or who use the wrong restroom, et cetera, et cetera. So this, this may be continuing litigation. I mean, th this is a subject that the Supreme Court has been addressing on and off, and they've actually got a case on the docket this, this year, which I think has already been argued but not decided yet, about the state of Maine. Uh, uh, we may have talked about this on a prior podcast. I don't, don't recall. The state of Maine has a program uh, because many of the rural counties in Maine don't have public high schools. They don't have enough students to- Oh, right, I remember. And so, and so they have a scholarship program where they will subsidize students going to a high school outside, you know, a private high school, if there's a private school or a school in another county. Uh, and they exclude uh, schools that teach religion. They provide religious education. Uh, and that's being challenged in the Supreme Court, whether that violates uh, the rights of the students and the schools. Uh, and the Supreme Court, you know, the, uh, the religious freedom activists on the Supreme Court have been pushing as hard as they can to find public money for religious schools right. under whatever guise, whether it's, you know, repaving the, uh, the parking lot or, or whether it's uh, scholarships that are paid to, to, to the parents to give to the school. <laughs> right. That pavement case wasn't sexy in terms of its facts, but really dangerous in terms of its holding. It's yeah. like pavement oh. for playgrounds or... So, so the this thing is, that strikes me so much that you mentioned was the, you know, 
we don't discriminate. It's just in a, we don't discriminate in admissions just when no. you get here. We don't like, discriminate based on status. We only discriminate based on conduct. Okay, so let's say it's, um, we don't discriminate against disability. All folks can come, but once you get here, we will not provide, we, at, we actually refuse to re- provide any accommodations for folks who may need ramps or, you know, yeah. everybody's admitted you just can't be yourself when you get here. But that would violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. Well, right? yes, but this, we're it arguing- you to accommodate disabilities. <laughs> yeah. My point uh, is, it's a are ridiculous- they required, argument, to accom- are they, they required to accommodate gay and transgender students? Right. It's ridiculous to say this is only about admissions, not about who you are once you get here. <laughs> I agree. I, I mean, the article uh, about this case, uh, which is written by uh, uh, one of my students, uh, contributing writer, uh, Joe Rockman, uh, he picks it apart. Uh, he cites a lot of law review articles discussing this issue. Uh, he points out the circular reasoning and the opinion and everything. The judge, uh, Stephanie Gallagher, was originally appointed by Barack Obama, nominated by Barack Obama, at a time when the Republicans were blocking most of his appointees. But then uh, Trump renominated her and didn't get through Congress during the first session. And he renominated her again during the second session of the, of the Congress. Uh, and she finally got through. Uh, but, you know, so we could call her a Trump appointed judge, but she was initially appointed by Obama. So, but, but she, she found that this, this was a, uh, a free speech case. All right. So uh, do you have an of note and is it on point with our school? Yes, I have an of note. Uh, and this is my, my sole appellate decision to discuss. Okay. Uh, it's a Ninth Circuit uh, panel, which affirmed a decision by a district judge, Consuelo Marshall, of the Central District of California, to dismiss a Title IX case brought by two gay students against Fuller Theological Seminary, which dismissed them after discovering that they were in same-sex marriages. Uh, and uh, they said this violates Title IX. And uh, the Fuller Theological Seminary said, no, we're exempt. We don't have to comply with Title IX because we are an educational institution which is controlled by a religious organization. And uh, is, there's a, a, an express exemption for uh, educational institution which is controlled by a religious organization if the application of Title IX would not be consistent with the religious tenets of the organization. And the plaintiffs argued, well, just a minute, Fuller Theological Seminary is a freestanding seminary it's not affiliated with any specific religious movement or establishment or anything like that. It's only answerable to its own board of trustees. It's a non-denominational Christian seminary. Uh, and therefore, they're not an educational institution which is controlled by a religious organization. They're just an educational institution. And Judge Marshall says, no, 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 that's, that's not how the Department of Education has interpreted this ever since the statute was passed in 1972. Uh, it's been clear that this religious exemption went to any religious educational institution, regardless of whether it was affiliated with a religious organization. Uh, they had also argued that uh, Fuller Theological Seminary had never submitted a written application to uh, the education department to have their exemption formally recognized. 
And the judge pointed out that the uh, regulation that authorizes them to apply for such official sanctioning for their discriminatory policies on the basis of sex is not mandatory, it's permissive. That is an educational institution who wants to have a letter from the education department saying that they're exempt can apply for one, but they don't have to. They still have the exemption because the exemption is conferred by the statute unconditionally. Uh, and the court said that we will not inquire into the religious views of Fuller Theological Seminary. As, as we know, the Supreme Court has said, we take them at their word what their religious views are. Yeah. Huh. Fascinating art. Well, any um, now that you're retired, do you have any big plans? Are you going on a vacation or getting out of this cold? I, I have to write law notes. I have a monthly deadline. I can't take, take long. To, you know, you can do that from the Caribbean. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm going to wait and see until the pandemic settles down a little bit before I do any traveling. You see, the, uh, the uh, federal government now advises against going on cruises. Since oh, that's seems, funny. Do you uh, know where my husband is right now? He's uh, entertaining on a cruise. He is. He's singing oh, on the Vakaya cruise. Well, tell him to keep his mask on while he's singing and dancing. Uh, him, he just performed with, um, well, he went out with Mary Lou Henner. She's uh, she's there too. Some of our judge friends are there. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. But yeah, I can imagine cruise ships are, I've, I, as I was telling you, I've been going to the Broadway theater because I think it's just so important to keep these shows open and the tickets are basically free. I mean, they're not free. They're just like severely smashed. Well, I have, um, I have tickets to a lot of concerts, but four yeah. concerts to which I have tickets during January have been canceled or postponed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh I have a concert coming up this Saturday night. I haven't heard yet that it might get postponed at the last minute. You know, I have Metropolitan Opera next week, but they, the Metropolitan Opera, the Times did a feature on this. They said, because they have such a deep bench, they have so many backup singers lined up. They're going ahead with operas, even when many of the principal singers have been diagnosed with COVID and, and can't appear. Because they've got substitutes. Same thing with the orchestra. They've got so many substitutes. Yeah. They can still perform. I, I would think even if a conductor came down with COVID, they, they have staff conductors who can step in. So the Met is determined to continue playing. I saw I saw a meme that was right after uh, the state of the state. And it was a picture of Kathy Hochul and it would be what the headline is of what she announced at the state of the state. And it says, Kathy Hochul announces that she's going in to replace as Elphaba and Wicked. (laughs) (laughs) Because we've just gone through, they were calling up old Elphabas who had done it, you know, years and years ago, who are now retired IT specialists. And they're like, we need you to come back to Broadway. <laughs> well, I think the thing about the state of the state is she had a, this long laundry list of legislative proposals and things and regulations and everything she's going to take. What was the immediate headline uh, the next day? She's going to reinstate the right of restaurants to sell drinks to go. That's what people thought was like the number one lead story. That, that you can go into a restaurant and they can serve you an alcoholic beverage that you can carry outdoors. Oh my God. I When I went to New Orleans, they put it in a plastic cup in a drive-through window. It's well, like, you know, I think, you know, the Supreme Court, uh, we're, we're, rec- we're recording this on January 14th. Yesterday, the Supreme Court issued a decision striking down Biden administration's, the new OSHA regulation, that uh, employers with more than 100 employees have to 
uh, require people to be vaccinated or tested. I'm thinking about what they're doing in Canada now. You can't you can't buy an alcoholic beverage unless you show uh, proof of, uh, of vaccination. Uh, and they said that uh, testing has just gone up and vaccination. They, they said there's a boom in vaccination now in Canada because uh, you have to show vaccination in order to buy an alcoholic beverage. Yeah. Well, I mean, New York is just such that we've really, I mean, our vaccination stats are tremendous and it's because at least in the city, um, well, in the state too, but in the city, you just can't do anything. Um, but they, they're still not requiring vaccination for uh, for public school students. And uh, I have I have a friend who's a high school math teacher, and he says, you know, it's it's really the teachers are really concerned that there are a lot of students there who are not vaccinated. And this it's is a high school, so these are teenagers. You know. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a whole nother thing. Um, but it's so good to see you, Art. Take care in your school today. Get those exams done and then do something fun for yourself. And thank you for keeping us updated with Law Notes and these amazing cases. We appreciate you and all that you do. Thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on iTunes, on Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us five stars or as many as they will allow, and leave us a comment. It's how people discover this podcast. We'll be back next month with Professor Art Leonard. Thank you so much.